My good people, greetings. What is happening? How are we feeling? Hope your weekend was great and your week is off to a fantastic start because Lord knows my sports week and weekend in particular has been nothing short of a disaster. And I'm going to get into all of it on this upcoming edition of the J Reels podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time to hear what it is that I have to say about the world of sports, I welcome you guys aboard and thanks for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who've been with me on this journey from episode one to now 77-0, I welcome you guys back here on a Monday, May the 20th in the year of our Lord, 2019. What we have on the docket, Brooks Kepka hangs on to win the PGA back-to-back for the first time since Tiger back in the day. We'll get into everything that happened out at Beth Page Black over the weekend. We'll also talk about the Preakness, how War Will, yes, that War Will, who was interfered by maximum security, wins the Preakness and... Who knows? We probably could have had a triple crown threat this year with the Belmont Stakes, but we know that's not happening. I'll also get into what's happening in the NBA playoffs. The Golden State Warriors on the cusp of another NBA Finals, while Toronto had to scratch, claw, fight, do whatever it takes to go down 0-3 as they got back in the series last night against the Milwaukee Bucks. We'll also talk about the Knicks. That's right, the Knicks, but they'll only get the number three pick as they fall short of the Zion Williams and sweepstakes. That, the NFL, I'm calling this the Adam Gase of Thrones. That's right, in light of the season and series finale of the acclaimed HBO hit show. We'll talk about what happened there last week at Florham Park, and including a take that I haven't heard from anyone in reference to not only just the audacity of a one Adam Gase, but also the owner, Christopher Johnson. But we're going to start off with the New York Mets. And although we're a week away from Memorial Day and about, what, six to seven weeks away from the 4th of July, well, guess what? The fireworks are going to start right here, right now. And I'm sure the Legion of Met fans will be right behind me with everything that I have to say about what took place, not only this past week, but especially this weekend in Miami as the Mets fell to the worst team in the league that came in at 10-31, and Losers of seven straight, of 14 of 16, in that seven-game losing streak, had eight runs and did not include one home run. And what you saw this weekend, well, in particular Friday night against Jacob DeGrom of all people, where they had eight runs and their catcher, Jorge Alfaro, hit a bomb that I think is still flying. Maybe I think it just landed in the Atlantic Ocean. And what you got from this weekend where... Friday night, as bad as that was, all right, 8-6. But when you go up against the immortal Pablo Lopez where the Mets bombed, literally tattooed him 10 days ago at City Field to the tune of eight runs in the first inning, Sandy Alcantara with a two-hit shutout, which we'll call it the triple Maddox, which is now, I guess, the chic and nouveau term that's being thrown around here in baseball because what he did yesterday was throw... An 89-pitch, two-hit shutout in under two hours. So you have the triple Maddox where, again, he threw under 100 pitches, threw a complete game shutout, and he did it in an hour and 59 minutes. That was on the heels of the night before where the Mets only got one hit against Pablo Lopez and four relievers. Now, we know this offense has been very streaky. April started off hot, and May has cooled off considerably. And now we're at a point where the Mets are pretty much mirroring this year to last year. 
because as we all know, they got up to that 11-1 start and they were playing baseball that we, we Met fans couldn't even imagine. And then it wasn't until around this time last year where it started to fade away. In particular, that four-game series at home against the Cubs where they got swept. And if you recall, that was an, uh, it was a nine-game homestand where they had four against the Cubs, two against the Orioles, which they came in here and swept them, 2-1 and one nothing. if those Met fans remember, which I'm sure they want to forget. And then they lost the first two to the Yankees, and then thankfully won the Sunday night game where Seth Lugo was masterful, and Todd Frazier, of all people, hit a home run, and the Mets went on to salvage that homestand, which fell to 1-8 and eight on the homestand, and pretty much that was the beginning of the end for the season. Because if you remember, in June, they were 5-21 and 21 as a team, and then never to be heard from. Well, guess what? The 2019 Mets are on that same path. As they're now five games on the 500. Their manager, which I understand he's going to be the target. And rightfully so, they should let him go as of right now. And as I'm recording this at 12.06 p.m., I actually wanted to wait all morning to see if I were to get any type of word whether or not that he was going to be managing this Met team tonight as the Washington Nationals come in for four before the Tigers come in for three over the Memorial Day weekend. And as I said on the podcast last week, after they won the first two games against the Marlins and they had the rain out, and this was a 16-game, now 15 with the rain out, 15-game stretch for the, Met, for the Mets to take a deep breath, you see who's on the schedule, let's see if we could bounce back, try to put it all together, and get a few games over 500 before they go to L.A. and Arizona, which is not going to be an easy trip after these 16 games or 15 games will be in the books. Well, guess what? Last Tuesday was looking great. Noah Syndergaard, eight innings. Gives you a solid performance. Wilson Ramos with a grand slam in the first inning. 4 nothing, and the Mets cruise to a 6-2 game. So you're thinking, all right, great. Now the 3-0. They have Wilmer Font. Wait, Wilmer Font? Okay. Well, I remember Zach Wheeler pitched Friday night against the Marlins. And then here we are. Maybe we can move him up and then move Jacob to pitch against the Nationals. No. Never a thought in their minds. And I understand the national team isn't the team of recent vintage where they may be threats in the division. But it would be nice for the Mets to have the thought process to say, you know what, let's move these two guys up. We're going into Miami this weekend. We'll pitch Noah on Friday. Or, I'm sorry, we'll pitch Steven Matz, who came back into the rotation. We'll pitch him Friday night, Noah Saturday, and then Wilmer Fun on Sunday. Because Zach Wheeler would have been on proper rest if he would have pitched Wednesday night. And then Jacob DeGrom would have been on proper rest if he pitched Thursday afternoon in the getaway game. What happens? Wilmer Font, typical three innings, five inning, you know, five runs. Mets going to muster up a run. Away we go. Then Zach Wheeler gives him a four spot first inning. And you're thinking, oh, geez, it's going to be one of those Zach Wheeler performances. He's going to pitch five innings. He's going to throw 100 pitches. Who knows if he's going to even keep his team in the game and the Mets are going to lose two out of three and away we go. So then what happens? The Mets actually come back and tie the game behind Michael Conforto's three-run homer. So you're thinking 4-4, all right, great. You're feeling pretty good. Maybe the Mets somehow, some way can not only come back, win this thing, but go down to Miami. You feel a little bit better about yourself, but no. What does Zach Wheeler do? He gives up a two-run homer in the fifth inning to, of all people, Gerardo Power. 
Now, no offense to Gerardo Parra, but, you know, this guy isn't uh, Bryce Harper, Juan Soto. Come on. And then Zach Wheeler, this is a whole other issue, which I got to get off my chest. Zach Wheeler, who was 10-1 and in the second half of last year, he's coming into his free agent walk year. You would think that he would have put this all together to the point, not to say he was going to translate that 10-1 and was going to translate to this year, but the inconsistencies from this guy is unbelievable. And I understand if you're a Met fan, you're not thinking about re-signing him after this year and the way he's performed so far. Of course not. But the one thing that does stick in your craw is that Michael Conforto now gets, collides with Robinson Cano, and we're going to get to him in a second, collides with him, and now he's concussed. He's on the seven-day protocussion, uh, concussion protocol. I can't even speak right. So thankfully the Mets were smart, and probably the only smart move that they did all week was send him by train to New York as opposed to flying him, because if we remember 11 years ago with Ryan Church, who was having an all-star first half that the Mets could only dream of. He gets concussed in Colorado, and then they fly him back, and the guy was never the same. So at least that was one thing that you could put on the checklist and say, all right, well, whew, we didn't screw that one up. So now we get to the weekend. So now to go to Miami, they lost 2-3. or three. Now you knew the Marlins were going to win one of these games. And you wouldn't have been surprised they won two out of three, considering that the Mets have beaten them the first five games that they faced each other this year. So now, Friday night, Jake didn't have it. And I'm not going to worry about Jake, but the one thing you do worry about is that he dominated the Marlins his first two starts, that 13-striker performance in the first week of the season, as well as just last Saturday night. You know, it was vintage DeGrom. And now here, he just get, got shelled. Their catcher hit a bomb. I, I think it just, forget about it. That thing hit off the back of the grassy knoll in dead center field. And now you're thinking, all right, well, we got to win the back two games with Steven Matz, who's coming back from an injury, and also Noah on Sunday. So you're feeling pretty good. But no, you have the, like I said, Pablo Lopez with a Mets tattooed the week before, and Sandy Alcantara, who is now Greg Maddox. And the Mets were only able to muster up three hits over the next two games, which leads you to today. And now you wonder whether or not the manager is going to survive. And if he does survive, is Robinson Cano in the lineup because what he pulled over the weekend was just, it was almost Cespedes-esque. Where he doesn't run out balls, he didn't run out of double play ball Friday night, then yesterday the ball goes foul and then it comes back fair and he's standing there arguing with the home plate umpire. Mickey Calloway's defending him in the post game. I mean, I'm sorry, Mickey Calloway, if... And I'm sure he's a nice guy, and not that you want to see anybody get fired, but it's time for him to go. That's all there is to it. It's time for him to show him the door. And I get that they're not going to bring in Joe Girardi, and I get that they're not going to bring in Buck Showalter. They're not going to bring in those guys because we all know in this day and age, the state of baseball the way it is in 2019, it's all about the analytics. And if these guys aren't going to come in here to, I kind of hate to say this to the Game of Thrones fans, bend the knee considering the backlash that a lot of the fans with the show, but that's a whole nother story. But if the manager isn't going to genuflect in front of the GM, then why even bother? So Jim Riggleman, who's a great baseball guy, and he's going to be the short-term answer, but is this going to be, is it going to be Jerry Manuel part two? 
And not to compare Jim Riggleman to Jerry Manuel, but Manuel stood on for a couple of years even after he took over for Wooly Randolph back in 2008. Is this the path that this team is going to go in? And where's Brody Van Wagenen? We know that Jeff Wilpon is not going to answer to anyone. He shows zero accountability. He's never been a guy that's going to be front and center. In fact, he's the anti-Steinbrenner. And nobody's saying that he has to be George Steinbrenner. But at the same time, show a pulse. Say, I'm sick of this. We've been losing. It's unacceptable what happened over the weekend. Mickey should have pulled Cano out for a game. Should have sat him down. I want to see that. So if he was going to throw Mickey under the bus, so what? Let's get this straight. Let's get this together. This season is slipping right through your hands. Jeff Wolpon, do you want your ballpark to be empty in July, August, and September? And then Brody Van Wagenen, the voice of the people. More like a voice of a politician because he'll, he'll sell anything. But what about him? What about the moves he's made? He made this Cano deal. And Cano, other than a stretch that he had before he got hit on the hands on those couple of pitches, he's done nothing. And we got four more years of this at $80 million on the books. And even if he were to say goodbye Todd Frazier and goodbye Jason Vargas, if that was going to be his shakeup, whoa, well, yeah, those are two guys that were certainly going to make key contributions to this team this year. That's not going to cut it. And the Mets would never do that anyway because they're looking at, oh, wait, but we stole Todd Frazier $6 million the rest of this year. Oh, we stole Jason Vargas another five. <laughs> Please, that's a, that's a pittance. Yankee fans laugh at that on the way out the door. And the Yankee organization looks like, well, hey, so what? I mean, they find that in their sofa cushions. But it's the Mets. So Brody, you're going to have to step up, my guy, and face the music and say, I have not made the right moves. This bullpen is a disaster. I understand Jed Lowry's been hurt, so you can't put it all on him, but he hasn't even shown his face around here. The pitching staff has not delivered. Other than Pete Alonso, which is probably the only thing he's done right all year. Because obviously, whoa, we don't want to start his free agency clock. But no, they brought him up day one and he has been leaps and bounds. The best player on his team. Maybe you want to look at Jeff McNeil and what he's done as far as just being consistent. His batting average, okay, I get it. But the reason why this roster as it's constructed is because now you can't move Frazier because nobody's going to want him and they're not going to cut him. And you're going to have a situation when Larry comes back, if he ever comes back. All right, so then what's going to happen with J.D. Davis? You're going to leave Jeff McNeil in the outfield. Your infielders, as it is right now, it's a cluster you-know-what. Dom Smith's going to have to get sent back to the minors. Their outfield is a mess. Keon Broxton's now gone. They bring up Carlos Gomez. Okay, fine, but... You know, what is Gomez going to do in the long run? Hopefully he produces because this is pretty much going to be it for him as far as his major major career is concerned. And the thing is, there's a zillion questions and there's not one answer. And just because if you bring in a manager here, which can help, but is Riggleman going to be that guy to shake things up? Because you know they're not going to bring in Joe Girardi or Buck Showalter. That isn't happening. So, right, so who is the blame here? To me, it's Brody Van Wagenen. Because Mickey, I understand for what he's said and what he hasn't done. And right, he should have sat Cano Saturday night. And I understand it's tough to sit him because the Met had, their offense is now on vacation. 
I think they were somewhere on Ocean Drive over the weekend because they were nowhere to be found. Three hits against those pitchers? Against that team? Uh, I don't know what else to say. I just don't. And like I said, they got seven games now with the Nationals and the Tigers. I don't know what I was thinking that this team could go 10-5 and in those 15 games. Because right now, you'd be lucky to split against this team and go two out of three, which means you're four and three, and then you go to L.A. and Arizona, and you know L.A.'s going to get whacked behind the barn against them. And this, I tell you, this season is now, it's almost as if the Mets are out to sea. They could still see the shore. They could still see land. But guess what? They see a ton of water. And they see some waves, and they see some bad weather coming, and there is no one to come and rescue them. That's where the season is right now. It is that close for them to just being lost and forgotten in 2019. And I, I, listen, I don't have the answers. I don't know. I'd say bringing Joe Girardi. How great would that be? But you think he's going to come into this mess? I don't think he'd be that desperate to want to manage a baseball team. I'm sure he sees a lot of potential in them, but he's like, uh-uh. I just came off of a Game 7 in the 2017 ALCS, and now I'm going to go into this? Now, who knows? Maybe he wants to take on the challenge, but again, bend the knee? Brody Van Wagenen? Nah, that's not happening. All I got to say is, with the Mets now, they just need to, they, as I said before, if they could just win series. So if you split here and win the Tigers, huh? all right, great. You know, it's certainly not going to bolster any hope or any type of positivity because this team, they're not going to go on any sustained winning streak. We have not seen it since the opening week of the year. It's not going to come at any point. And you could say, well, hey, J. Reels, it's only 45 games. Come on. This is a movie I've seen plenty of times. Why would this all of a sudden change? Why? Anyway, I, I got to get off this because there's a bunch of other things I need to discuss and let's get to it. As far as the Yankees are concerned, what can I say? And they're the polar opposite. The Yankees continue to win series. They continue to do the things they need to do. All right, they lost a tough game on Saturday, 2-1 extra innings. All right, it happens. They played an abbreviated series because of the weather last week against the Orioles. What happens? Gleyber Torres has three home runs in both games. They win 3-1 and 5-3. Ho-hum, case closed. Friday night, they're down 3-1 in a ninth inning against Tampa. What happens? Heroics. Gio Urshela gets the game-winning hit. Three-run ninth inning. They take the AL East lead at that point. And then they take it right back yesterday behind a seven-run fifth inning. That's right, seven runs where the Mets... Couldn't get seven runs in a month. And the Yankees get in one inning. And, and again, in one inning, seven runs. And that's without Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, Miguel Andujar, who's now on the shelf for the rest of the year with his rotator cuff. But that's all right, because the Yankees are resourceful. They're playing together. It's a, another guy up to that steps up to the plate every day. And they just keep it moving. Uh, there's nothing else to add. And guess what? This week they play four in Baltimore and three in Kansas City. So guess you're looking at at least minimum five and two this week. Probably six and one. You wouldn't be surprised they win all seven. You know why? Because the Yankees beat the teams they need to beat. While the Mets, they're the Mets.
And that's all I got to say about the Yankees. I mean, they just they keep winning series. And as long as you do that, you'll be fine. Now, I understand a half game ahead, and then the Red Sox, four and a half, five and a loss. Red Sox finally won against the Astros yesterday. The Astros have won 10 in a row, and they're looking like the best team, although the Dodgers, I'm sure, would probably argue that. But the Astros are certainly looking like a juggernaut right now. And the Dodgers, look at Cody Bellinger. Cody Bellinger, 17th home run. He's batting 405. So, of course, if he continues this, especially going into, I'll say going into Memorial Day, if he's at 405, and especially June 1st, that's when, and nobody's expecting him to hit 405. That is not going to happen. Or you go over 400. To me, if you're hitting 400 in June and you had the plate appearances, that, that's a moral victory. Because in this day and age, nobody's going to hit 400 ever. Ever. That's one thing I don't think anybody will ever see. Even with juice baseballs and small ballparks. No. So, and then when you look at the rest of baseball, what else do I got to talk about here? Yeah, we mentioned that. Um, now everybody, everything is pretty much status quo. Cubs, I know you had that incident over the weekend with Joe Madden, who's trying to be, you know, God's gift to baseball managing with the Sean Doolittle. And it's funny because Doolittle's delivery is similar to Clayton Kershaw's, where he has that leg up and then he comes down and looks like he hits the ground or hits the pitching mound before he delivers, which is a legal pitch, and then he's going to protest the game. But then he says that, oh, I know what I saw, but I'm not going to go ahead with the protest. I mean, you know, it's just typical. I mean, what could you say? You know, he's going to – I'm not going to say he's going to rub his opponents the wrong way, but, of course, the gamesmanship is just – with him, it's unlike you, any other manager in baseball. You know, they're not going to do that. They're, but, of course, he has to go out there with his glasses and a hoodie and, you know, point and uh, – all right, and you finally won your championship three years ago with the Cubs. I get that. But, again, you know, you're not Miller Huggins. You're not John McGraw. You're not Casey Stengel. So let's pipe down there, okay? Because I've had enough of it when it comes to him and, you know, trying to reinvent baseball and try to go ahead and make him out to be smarter than what he is. So that's what you got there with the baseball. Uh, other things that come to mind off the top of my head. Yeah, as I want to move along because I got so much other things to get to. Uh, you know what, let's uh, talk about the NBA playoffs real quick. Right now, you're looking at Golden State, you got a sweep tonight, and here's the sad thing. If they do win tonight, you're not going to see them for another 10 days. Now, thankfully, the Raptors won because if the Bucks won last night and you were looking at two sweeps, you wouldn't see any basketball being played for nine days if that would be the case. But thankfully, you're at least going to get a game five in the Eastern Conference Finals, where tonight you would think the Golden State Warriors will put to rest the Portland Trailblazers. And let's face it, the Trailblazers, they had a good run, but now they're playing the varsity and there's no way they can hang. I get that Damian Lillard is hurt with that uh, collision or really the scrum at the bottom of the pile there with uh, Kevon Looney, where he's uh, injured a rib. They said it's separated which that's affected him, but he's not using it as an excuse. But they actually had a chance there in that game two, and they certainly didn't. They came up small there, and they certainly came up small there in game three the other night as they had a 15-point lead at halftime, and they weren't able to put him away. And it wasn't even just Steph Curry. Draymond Green had a triple-double. And if Draymond Green's going to play like that, and we've seen spurts throughout this run where he has played like that, 
it brings you back to that first championship year, 2015. And it makes you think that, hey, without Kevin Durant, this team could go on and win a title. Now, I don't know about the next round because you have Giannis and the Bucks are going to be a much better team. But if you're Golden State right now, obviously you're sitting pretty, you're looking good, and your chances are you're going to have 10 days off between now and the start of the finals, May 30th. Now, is that going to be a good thing? We'll talk about that next week on the podcast because we all know about layoffs and how rust and all that could play into it. But right now the Warriors are a well-oiled machine, and they're certainly going to go in for the kill tonight at the Motor Center in Portland. And as far as the other series is concerned, again, Toronto had to have that win last night, and they did whatever it took even with 52 minutes played by Kawhi Leonard, willing his team to victory. I understand he had a leg injury, which he's not sweating. But Toronto right now, although they had all the ammunition and did whatever it took to win that game, I don't know if that's going to be enough for them to win tomorrow night in game four. Giannis had a bad game. Got, he was fouled out, of course. Chris Middleton did not play well. Eric Bledsoe, uh, it was almost if the Bucks, for whatever reason, they kind of said, eh, we're playing with house money. We don't need to have the urgency. And granted that Toronto pretty much had the lead throughout the course of the game, and then Milwaukee came back. And even, I'm sure, LeBron, I know all the memes came out last night, the forced overtime where George Hill hit this, those two free throws, which I thought was kind of funny because if you harken back to game one of the NBA Finals last year, he made that first free throw, missed the second one, J.R. Smith. We all know how that unfolded. But if you're Toronto, you got to get more contributions from Siakam, Serge Ibaka didn't do anything in the game yesterday. You know, you need those guys to really step up to the forefront and hit some key shots, make some plays. Because, as as listen, Toronto, would I be surprised they win tomorrow night? No, but they're not going to win the series. I said at the start, I said Golden State in five, and I said Milwaukee in six. And I could see that play out. I think Milwaukee, they're going to mean business tomorrow night. I can see them winning. I can see them winning in five games. Maybe Toronto somehow, some way, pulls out the victory in game five in Milwaukee. Considering game one, they had a shot to win, but there was all Brooke Lopez, who had 29 points and a bunch of threes, and then they annihilated them that Friday night game. But you're looking at Milwaukee-Golden State, and that uh, should be a very intriguing and enticing final. But until it's official, and we'll talk about it next Monday on the pod, if that uh, comes to fruition, right now it's certainly looking as if uh, both of these series are going to be over sooner than much later. And as far as the Knicks are concerned, I know the Knicks fans, boy, they were at the edge of their seats, and that was pretty riveting, that NBA draft lottery, if you watched. When you saw Cleveland fall, excuse me, and you saw Phoenix fall, and you're thinking, oh, geez, where did the Knicks land in all this craziness. And when they got to the top four, I thought to myself, I said, whomever is that number four pick? And I thought to myself that if it was going to be Memphis or even New Orleans, I thought that the Lakers, first, before going into that, I said the Lakers are going to win this thing. Something tells me, I said, my gut is going to tell me that the Lakers are going to win this thing. And if I felt that it was going to be either Memphis or New Orleans, I'm going to say, oh my God, it's going to be between the Knicks and the Lakers and watch the Lakers get it and the Knicks at the number two pick which everybody would be in outrage, everybody would think it's fixed, et cetera, whatever. But when the Lakers came out of the envelope and they were at number four, I said, oh, geez, maybe the Knicks can get to number one. And then, of course, the Knicks were three, followed by Memphis and then 
New Orleans. So the Pelicans will have the rights to draft Zion Williamson. I know all the reports came out where Williamson was really hoping to be a Nick or even Atlanta Hawk for that matter. And the Hawks will end up getting two picks. Remember to get the Dallas pick, but they got eight and ten in the lottery. So all you can hope for right now, Nick fans, and again, this is way too early to get into all the speculation with trades and whatever. You got to get to the draft first, or at least the days leading up to the draft. But if the Knicks are going to be quick to trade R.J. Barrett, Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson, whomever it may be, their future picks with Dallas for Anthony Davis, they, they got to pump the brakes on that. All right, so I'm not going to get into any of that speculation right now. There's still plenty of time to go. Uh, right, it's easy to say, keep the number three pick, have R.J. Barrett be the guy that you're going to draft, considering it's going to be Zion and John Morant, and the Grizzlies like John Morant from some of the things that I've read, so why not? So you're going to go R.J. Barrett three, and away you go. But that's as today, May 20th. But as we get closer, we'll see. But I don't think the Knicks are... The Knicks draft him... Sign who you need to sign. If it's going to be Kevin Durant, if it's going to be Kemba Walker, if it's going to be Kyrie Irving, and then you just let it go from there. Don't start getting cute and trading picks and stock loading with all these guys and you know let Anthony Davis go somewhere else. If if I'm James Dolan, if I'm Steve Perry, Scott uh, Scott Perry, Steve Mills, I say no. We're keeping Barrett. We have money to fulfill these two max spaces. Let's just go that route and off we go. That's it. I'm sure the Knicks fans will be happy about that. There's no need to bring in Anthony Davis in and trade this pick. And uh, No, I wouldn't do that. But again, as we're closer, and obviously we have a lot of time between now and the NBA draft to dissect and regurgitate whatever it may be, the state of the Knicks for 2019-2020. All right, before I get to the Jets, I want to talk about the PGA yesterday, kind of break it up here with the sports Brooks Kepka, who is now, pound for pound, arguably the greatest golfer in the world, and he certainly showed that yesterday by staving off a Dustin Johnson who was certainly nipping at his heels, considering the way Brooks Kepka started this tournament, shooting a 63 in the first round, which I believe is the best ever in the PGA throughout its history, and then he continued that Friday into Saturday, stumbled a little bit, but still had a comfortable lead going into yesterday. And then for whatever the reason, I don't know, maybe he just rested on his laurels a little bit. I don't know if the weather was beautiful here uh, throughout the weekend in New York. But uh, Kepka certainly had to fight off Dustin Johnson, who was certainly inching closer and closer. And that would have been some collapse if that was the case. Would have been uh, Greg Norman-esque, 86 Masters. But be that as it may, he was able to fight off, especially a stretch where he had was going for four straight bogeys. At one point, but then Dustin Johnson had a couple of bogeys late on his end, which pretty much led to Kepka winning the PGA. Uh, I'd have to go back in the history books. I know the last person to do that was Tiger, and I'd, if I had to take a guess, it had to be in the mid-2000s. So something that hasn't happened in at least a decade plus uh, has happened here with Kepka, who's now won four of the last eight majors. And remember, Kepka was a birdie putt away from tying Tiger at the Masters last month, which would have led to a playoff. And that would have been riveting, to say the least, to see how that uh, would have unfolded. And speaking of Tiger, I understand everybody was hoping, praying, fingers crossed, that he would have another magical run in him. 
And there were a lot of factors that people thought throughout the course of the week that maybe attributed to Tiger not even making the cut after Friday. There were a lot of uh, videos and stories that had surfaced about Tiger having a practice round on Monday over at Beth Page Black. And the weather in New York early last week was atrocious. It was 45 degrees in rain. And he was out there pretty much having a competitive round of golf to himself. Therefore, there was reports about him being sick and not feeling well leading up into the tournament, which could have been part, partly the reason for his downfall to not even make the cut after the first two rounds. And it was just a shame. I, I, listen, I didn't think Tiger was going to win. I'm sure a lot of people were optimistic, thinking that he could go in there and maybe be a threat to the leaderboard that comes Sunday if he was just a couple of strokes behind, just like he was with the Masters, that the chances or even the thought of him getting the first two majors of this year would have been, it certainly would have been more than magical. It would have been miraculous if that was the case. But obviously that wasn't a story after Friday. And Kepka was pretty much in cruise control until yesterday hitting some turbulence. But nevertheless, he was able to come out on top and he is your PGA winner. And then now we'll have the next week, or I should say next month, with the U.S. Open, usually Father's Day weekend. And uh, we'll see if Kepka could continue this pace that he's on, clicking off, seems like, every other major for him. And uh, kudos to him. And the arrogance and the... I, and listen, if he's able to back up what he says and going into the PGA, he says it's pretty much me and everybody else. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he certainly backed it up. I know the video went viral him with his girlfriend when he's walking pretty much to the first tee and his girlfriend went to kiss him and he's just had this stone cold look. And at the end, obviously, they embraced and I mean, it was all for naught, but anybody's looking for a story, anybody's looking for an angle, anybody's looking for, you know, the gif, the meme, the whatever it may be. So Kepka again, is your 2019 PGA winner. All right, now let's turn the attention to the Jets. And what a week for New York sports, huh? You had the Knicks not getting the Zion lottery. You had the Mets and everything that I explained 15 minutes ago. And now you have the Jets. And in light of the series finale of the Game of Thrones, let's throw that back in the mix, I'm calling this segment the Gase of Thrones. Because what we have here is a case of a guy who has coached three years in the league, had one winning season, went to the playoffs, and lost in the first round of Pittsburgh three years ago. Who, by all means, speaking of arrogance, if you look at the Webster's Dictionary, I'm sure you're going to see a picture of Adam Gase's face next to the word arrogant. But he was a guy that was no-nonsense. My way of the highway, as he jettisoned players down in Miami, whether it was Ndamukong Su whether it was Jay Ajayi, guys of that ilk. You know, not the third-string cornerback. So he was letting loose guys that, hey, if you're not going to abide by what it is in my rules of this team, then you're going to get shown the door. So now we had a situation where Gase, who certainly didn't sign off on the Le'Veon Bell signing, he thought that for the running back position, and he's right, Got to agree with him on this. How, not that he didn't like Le'Veon Bell, but he didn't like the cost and what it's going to do for the cap. Same for C.J. Mosley, for the most part. But Bell, as we know, being the more mercurial one and how he would take that 
And considering that Gase is an offensive-minded coach and what that could do to a player, especially of Bell's magnitude, considering what he endured toward the end in Pittsburgh, especially with his contract negotiations, and now thinking that, oh, I'm not that type of guy. I should be paid this much, so on and so forth. So you have that dynamic you're going to look out for, especially as training camp begins in a couple months. But now the struggle from within where it was shot down that there wasn't a struggle between former GM Mike McCagden and Adam Gase. And then now, what was it, last Wednesday, Christopher Johnson in a statement says, as of this point moving forward, we have released Mike McCagden of his duties as GM of the New York Jets. We'd like to thank him, his wife, blah, 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 etc. Well, first and foremost, what was it that you couldn't have done this back in January? And Christopher Johnson, if you cannot, and I get that Woody Johnson left and he's not the ambassador of England or the royal baby or whatever, I don't know. But now that Christopher Johnson is the de facto owner, what was going through his brain that he decided on this day, last Wednesday, whatever the date was, today's the 20th, so on May 15th, to release your GM after not only did he spend $125 million on free agents, but he conducted the whole 2019 NFL draft. Was Adam Gase that much in your ear and that much of an influence that you had to make this move on this day and this time? And I understand Mike McCagden, he's not a fiery guy. He's not a guy that he he doesn't seem to be very confrontational. He's very soft-spoken, easygoing, it seems. And maybe you thought that by Adam Gase throwing his weight around for a guy who's done nothing in this league, let's face it, that it was okay to go ahead and just terminate your GM after everything he did this offseason? That's as classless and is just downright awful as a move and the timing and everything that you could possibly, you can't even, that's another one that you can't make up. And the insane thing is, is that for the last 18 months or so, the Giants were pretty much the Jets you might as well, they probably would have been covered in green, but instead it was blue, and they had become the Jets over the last 18 months with everything that transpired with that organization. And then all of a sudden, the Jets said, wait a minute, the Giants have the title for being the laughing stock of not only New York, but the NFL? Oh, no, we have to retake that and take our title back, our trophy, everything, because we're the perennial, we're the definition of laughing stock. And just like I said about the coach and arrogance, if you look at laughing stock, you're going to have J-E-T-S, Jets, 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 Right next to that word somewhere in Webster or, or Oxford's dictionary. And all you could say to yourself if you're a Jet fan, and I'm sure you probably felt good with the offseason, you're looking ahead, all right, we got Sam Darnold. I don't have to tell you. The players you got in the mix, the draft picks, etc. All right, Gage you may not have been in love with, but hey, let's see. And then this happens. And Adam Gase wins the power struggle. Adam Gase, I don't know, maybe he's the second coming of Bill Belichick for all we know. Chances are that's not going to happen. I'm sure I could put my life savings on that. But at the same time, I hate to say it, if that was his MO and he succeeded, God bless him. Was it right? Absolutely not. But the one to blame in all this is Woody, is Woody, is Chris Johnson. Blame Woody Johnson too because he's also, although he's not, part of the day-to-day operations, but his name is still attached to this team. 
But what a disgrace. So now you have a situation where the interim GM is Adam Gase. So he's going to handpick the next guy, whomever that may be. And a lot of the reports have it that the Eagles vice president of player personnel, Joe Douglas, who Gase is pretty close with, he's going to be a guy that's next in line here to be the GM uh, of the Jets. But wait, there's more. I read something earlier today, and I wish I was making this up. Mike Florio, ProFootballTalk.com, he has it out there that the Jets have been in talks as the next GM, Peyton Manning. That's right. I'll say it again. Peyton Manning. Mike Florio, that guy you see him, Sunday Night Football, very esteemed columnist there on that profootballtalk.com. Peyton Manning? Why? Because of his connection with Adam Gase? Now, what is Peyton Manning? And this is not the knock Peyton Manning. We know the career. We know everything. But you know, if Peyton Manning wants to be a GM, why don't you just call Jim Irsay and take over the Colts or be part of the ownership group there? I'll lodge John Elway in Denver when you won your last Super Bowl. Why would he be interested in taking this Jet job? Why? Especially even in the twilight, but especially in the same town that his brother's the quarterback of the team. To me, that is just far-fetched. And you know what? I'll post that on my Twitter from what I saw, just so you think I'm not off my rocker. And I'm not here to report anything erroneous. Because when I saw that, I said, nah, this is some nonsense. But then I see Mike Florio, pro football talk. I was like, wait a second, Mike Florio? All right, I'm not going to say this guy's Peter King or whatever. And it's, by any stretch, that's not to knock Mike Florio. But, I mean, this isn't some hack job on some bootleg website somewhere. So when you read that, you just you fall out of your chair. Because really, is there a possibility of Peyton Manning being the GM of the Jets? I tell you, it just doesn't get any weirder, stranger. Uh, what can you say? It's just, <laughs> I don't know, man. Insane, my people, insane. But anyway, so we'll see how that uh, shakes down. And I was going to put, you know, my hero and zero of the week. I was going to put it as Christopher Johnson, but, I mean, that was too much of a layup. So for Christopher Johnson, and I will say this lastly, just to finish this off with the Jets, how I think this is going to shake down, and it's sad that you have an owner like this because it just shows that he has no guts. It shows that he has no thought process. It's like Gaze gets in his ear, whines and babbles, ah, whatever he did. I'm not saying he allegedly whined or whatever, but the point of the matter is, is that he just screwed over the GM, McCagnan, and at the same time, he screwed over the fan base because now... You got Adam Gase, who's now, he holds the throne, despite the fact that the dragon annihilated it last night in that episode. But now he's the one that could put his feet up, and he could handpick whomever he wants as the GM. And this organization, which seemed like it was starting to, wait a minute, this isn't the typical Jets. Wow, okay, great. Who knows? Maybe not next year, but maybe 2020, 2021. That's it. We should be Super Bowl bound. Not after this move. So all I'm going to say is this, in closing with the Jets. If Christopher Johnson had the testicular fortitude to let go of Mike McCagnan and everything he did this offseason just to appease Adam Gase, 
then what's going to happen if this team is 6-10 and 10 with all the talent that they procured, the draft picks, etc.? Is he going to have that same energy to fire Adam Gase after one year? Because to me, that's where this is heading. Adam Gase now, his, the bullseye is on, not is on his back, it's on his forehead. And that's right, I said it. And it's proverbial, people. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm going to be laying in the weeds with a shotgun or anything like that. But you get my point. This is all on Adam Gase. So guess what? The career suicide watch is on. If he doesn't get to 10 wins or a playoff berth, I don't care if he's 9-7 and doesn't make the playoffs. He should be fired. And I understand people say, oh, who are you, Jay Rules, to come out? Oh, this is why I have a podcast. And you know what? And that totally makes sense because I bet you there's a million other Jet fans that would agree with what it is that I'm have to say, what it is I have to say about the state of this team and a guy who, let's face it, and I said it before and I'll say it one last time, one playoff appearance and 10 wins with the Dolphins does not make a Super Bowl resume or does not make a resume that's worthy of him doing what he did here. So if you disagree with that, then you, A, you don't watch football, or B, you have no clue what's going on. So that's all I got to say about that. And now let me turn my attention to the NHL because I got another fired shot that's going to be another firework that I'm ready to light up and shoot at. And again, I don't want to—I don't know who this guy is. I know he's a writer for NBC News, David Alter, which I'm going to get to in a second. But the Bruins, what a run that they've had here. Now they go back to the Cup, first time since 2013. Let's see if they could seal the deal as they await the winner of St. Louis and San Jose. And St. Louis... What a job by them to overcome what happened there in Game 3. How the referees missed, the officials missed that hand pass in the zone, which led to the goal in overtime. They go ahead and win a tough Game 4, and then yesterday, what could you say? They went in there, guns a-blazing, in San Jose, 5-0, behind Jaden Schwartz's hat trick. We're now 12 goals here in the postseason, and they can have a coronation in St. Louis. That's right. They haven't made the cup in forever. In fact, I want to say the last time they made the cup was one of the more iconic pictures, not only just in NHL history, but in sports history. Bobby Orr flying through the air after the game-winning goal. Which I believe is the last time the Blues have made the cup. And to think, you're going to have a rematch of that. uh, Of course, it's 48 years later. But I'm sure that's going to be, you're going to see a lot of that if both of those teams match up in a cup final. And you would think St. Louis would win, but this is the NHL. I can see this going seven games. Yeah, San Jose, this is not as if San Jose can't win a game six on the road. But I will say this. And I believe they did win a game six on the road in Vegas. But I will say this. San Jose, let's see where their testicular fortitude, to use that word again, let's see where their heart Let's see it all hang out right here. Their toughness. Because with everything that they faced here, especially in that first round with Vegas and Joe Pavelski, and, and you know, they've had a good run here too. And considering yeah, they got a break of all breaks in game number three, but now they're at home. And I'm sorry, they're uh, going to St. Louis. I take that back. They're going to St. Louis. They want to bring the series back home. And in St. Louis, they're ready to party like it's 1971. So let's see what they have left in the tank to try to bring this series back to the Bay Area for Game 7. I'm going to say St. Louis wins. 
five nothing annihilated them in that game and they're going to be ready to pop the champagne there to taste the cup or at least a trip to the cup for the first time in two generations all right now let me get to this guy real quick david alter nbc news the articles boston's brad marchand if i could say his name correctly and now his play is bringing the nhl back to the dark ages first of all i need to know how old this guy is I, I read his bio a little bit. He's been covering hockey for the last 10 years. So for all I know, he's probably like in his early 30s. NHL to the Dark Ages? First of all, do you know what the NHL Dark Ages were? And if so, do the names of Terry O'Reilly, John Wensink, Cam Neely, Jay Miller, Lyndon Byers, Stan Jonathan, Gord Kluzak, do any of those guys' names ring a bell? Any of those? Well, guess what? They may have been the Broad Street bullies in the 70s in Philadelphia, but the big bad Bruins of the 70s and into the 80s, especially in the 70s, you think of O'Reilly and Wensick, you know, Wensick was a lunatic. And obviously into the 80s for the other guys that I mentioned, Cam Neely, Jay Miller, Lyndon Byers, Nevin Marquardt is another name I could throw at you. For you to say that the NHL will go back to the dark ages, to me, that was the best of the NHL. And I don't want to hear how Marchand with, and listen, I don't like the things that he does, but the reason why he does that and gets away with it, let's face it, there are no enforcers in the league. Because if there were enforcers in the league, forget about it. They would check them through the boards and drop the gloves and pound them as well. And JD, you know I love you. And I don't have anything against Marchand. But it's just the point of this article that has me infuriated. It's because Marchand is a guy where I understand he's like a Sean Avery type. He'll fight. He's not a heavyweight by any stretch. But again, he's going to do anything to get under the skin of the opponent. And you saw that, I believe it was two years ago, or was it last year, I can't recall right now, when he licked, I think it was Victor Hedman's face. Which, if that was in the 80s, there's no way Marchand, he'd be laid out in a stretcher. But you want to call those the dark ages. That is not the dark ages. That was when men played hockey. That was when hockey was hockey. And I got to give credit to my guy Southpaw on Twitter for posting that article because I would have never have known about this if it wasn't for him. So kudos to you, my man. But for David Alter to come out and say, oh, the way the sport is, we try to, they're trying to, you know, we want to make this as good as the other four sports or the other three sports to be a top four sport in the country to have things the the tactics and to have this type of play is what's ruining the game so on and so forth you're nuts man you may not like what he does i understand he wrote in the article if you're a bruin fan you're gonna love him if you're an opponent you're gonna hate him but guess what that's been going on since the beginning of time too do you know who ken linsman is david alter do you know who esatikinen is do you know who Claude Lemieux is? I understand you put Sean Avery with the stupid stick swing in front of Martin Brodeur, but that's just stupid. I mean, that's just... He, and Sean Avery, please. He, I've bashed him on this podcast many times, so I'm not even going to waste my breath about him. But guys like that have been going around the league forever. But guess what? Let's bring up Claude Lemieux. He was a guy that got under people's skin. I understand later in his career when he was with Colorado, the hit against Chris Draper, where he went face first in the boards, which was a brutal play. But guess what? Claude Lemieux was that guy in 1987, and the anniversary was last week, where he shot the puck after 
warm-ups. Everybody's off the ice. He shot the puck into the opponent's net in 87, I believe it was before game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. And then what happened? Ed Hospital comes out of the locker room, or he's about to go in the locker room, he sees that, and he pounds Claude Demune's submission, where you have Dave Brown fighting Chris Nyland in, without even a T-shirt on. John Cordick, Daryl Stanley. I mean, that was, that was, loved it. How can you not love that? Now people are going to say, oh, Jay Reels, you're nuts. Oh, you're, you're NHL Neanderthal. What's wrong with you? What's crazy? Sorry. If Claude Lemieux was going to send that message, then guess what? Hospital sent that message. And guess what? The Flyers won that game, by the way. And I'm not trying to say that that fight precipitated the Flyers into winning that game and then going on to the Stanley Cup that year in 87. But guess what? Message was sent. Oh, yeah, you're going to do that, Claude Lemieux? Well, here you go. Take a few fists to the face. To me, that that was part of hockey, the intimidation factor. And I get that things are going to evolve, the sport's going to change, safety, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, they want to have the energy with safety now, but when Brett Lindros got hit in the 90s and couldn't play, nobody said anything about concussions then. Oh, now everybody wants to be concerned about it, because a lot of it because of the NFL. I get that, but still. Just an atro- I, I thought it was just a terrible job by David Alter saying the dark ages. To me... And to a lot of people out there, that was hockey. And that was serious hockey. And I understand even in your article, you said, oh, if two guys are going to drop the gloves and you know they're going to fight or whatever. Well, that was part of the game. And if Brad Marchand was going around there licking people and throwing sticks in Justin Williams' face, yeah, if there was a resident tough guy in Carolina, guess what? That next shift, he's going right at him. And let Marchand turtle... Let him skate away. Let him do whatever. Uh-uh. But you know what? That guy is, has a job to police that ice and police his team, and you wouldn't have any of that nonsense. Any of it. Because then what will happen is the resident tough guy for the Bruins will come over there, and boom. And there you go. It's part of the territory, and it's part of the game. But, of course, the higher-ups after the stupid lockout, like he wrote, David Alter, ruined the sport. But the sport was ruining before that, which for reasons I won't even get into. But, yeah. Dark ages? Bring back those dark ages. Not only they were a lot more entertaining, it was a lot more physical, it was a lot more intimidating, and certainly this Disney on Ice product that's out there, I, I, I barely watch as it is to begin with. But it is a disgrace compared to what this game once was. All right, let me get off that high horse there. Let me wrap this up with a couple of things. The Preakness... We had the War Will, the horse that was interfered with maximum security in the Derby, wins the Preakness. And I understand a lot of the speculation is going to be thought of, oh, what if War Will would have won the Derby? He could have had a Triple Crown winner in the making. Well, obviously that's not going to happen, but you'll have the Belmont Stakes. And I understand you had that one horse, I can't pronounce it, that was ran without a jockey. Uh, to me, that was, come on. Bad enough, these horses. I understand they're trained and, you know, they're, but still. You know, I'm not going to get all PETA on the horse racing industry. But, you know, to have that situation, I mean, come on. I mean, what are they doing there? So, anyway, but again, we understand it's a triple crown. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to delve into it because, obviously, I'm not a horse racing aficionado. But when you hear what happened, when you heard what happened with that horse... Just riding without a jockey. Just thankfully didn't get hurt. Thankfully didn't go off to the right or whatever. We understand it's trained to race, but still. I mean, what could you say? And then also, one last thing. 
I know you had the fight the other night with uh, Deontay Wilder. Uh, Wilder, excuse me, I can't even pronounce his name correctly. You had Wilder fighting Damian Breziali, I guess you pronounce his name, and he knocked him out 44 seconds in the first round. And Wilder, we know, is a lightning rod. Last week making those comments that, yeah, I'm paid to kill a guy, to loosely say his words. And it's going to be interesting with that heavyweight uh, division because Tyson Fury, I understand they've already had fought, but then Anthony Joshua's a guy that's on the up-and-coming or is a guy that's already here. I shouldn't even say he's on up-and-coming. So although he didn't say when he's going to fight these guys, whether he rematches with Fury or Joshua, but he says that's on the docket, will remain to be seen. I'm trying to get back into the fight game, people. You know, I haven't been a follower of the sport for many years. If you heard me a few weeks ago when I talked about the Daniel Jacobs-Canelo fight. And this is a sports podcast, so I got to cover the whole gamut. And if any way, shape, or form, the sport's not going to be anywhere near what it once was. But if I could get back into it, I understand a lot of fighters out there that are certainly moving up the ranks and doing what it takes to kind of bring the sport back, so to speak. So if that's the case, you know, I'm going to start following a little bit more. But Wilder, I know he's just a circus act. You know, of course, his famous uh, comment there before the Fury fight to this day. And all I mean, it's hysterical. But uh, And Wilder, hey, he has a great record. I mean, what could you say? What is he now, 41-0 and 0 with 30-something knockouts? I think 30, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, kudos to him. Kudos to Wilder. And uh, away you go as far as uh, the boxing is concerned. Now to wrap this up, my hero in zero of the week. Oh, one last thing. The Indy 500 is Sunday. And all I'm going to say about this, I have known nothing about racing. I certainly know nothing about NASCAR. But the one thing as a kid growing up, and I say this pretty, I think I may have said this last year, the Indy 500 is Americana. When you think of the Indy 500, you think of Mario Andretti, you think of Jackie Stewart, you think of A.J. Foyt, you think of all those great uh, race car drivers of the past. And it's just a shame that it's a, that's a shell of its old self. And not that I'll be watching closely, but that Sunday before Memorial Day, every year, especially in the 70s into the 80s, you always wonder, oh, Indianapolis 500, who's going to win? Obviously, that's not the case anymore, considering there's a million sports to watch, and NASCAR has pretty much overtaken uh, the auto racing scene, so Indy 500 kind of gets thrown in the background. But that's coming Sunday. I just wanted to acknowledge that. Hero of the Week, Chris Long, 11 years in the NFL. We know his story. Son of Howie Long. Played uh, all those years, won a Super Bowl there with the Eagles a couple years ago. He goes off to the sunset. Cute Instagram post as he's holding up a cup, kind of saying cheers to his career. So good for him, and uh, hopefully he's going to be as successful in whatever he does. So hero to him. My zero of the week, I was going to say Christopher Johnson. And I, I understand it's a layup. I wanted it to be somebody else, but I couldn't think of anybody else. I really couldn't. Christopher Johnson, I, all I'm going to say is this. You heard it in my assessment earlier Christopher Johnson get your head right become an owner or hire somebody that's going to be somebody that's the face of the organization and the face of the franchise so you could just sign the checks and let them take care of all the personnel stuff because what you're doing now you're just disturbing your fan base even more than what it already is and right now they're looking at more of the three ring circus that's probably going to take place between now and God knows when that if 6 and 10 does happen in Adam Gase's future that you just wipe the slate clean, bring in a guy who knows better, and away you go and let them be. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this podcast. Uh, again, it goes without saying how much I greatly appreciate your love and support and how you could continue to do that. 
is to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, go to any of those platforms or wherever you get your uh, podcast from, leave a rating, post a review. All that's going to do is just increase the visibility with all the other sports podcasts that are out there. And with that, it's going to generate a lot of just positive feedback, whatever it may be. Uh, Hey, listen, whether you want to put five stars, I would appreciate that, four and a half, whatever it may be, but just say, hey, J Reels comes from the hip. He knows what he's talking about, whatever it is. All that's going to do is just put notice that this show is out there and hopefully it will just spread like wildfire. And not only that, but also if you have any questions, comments, criticism, praise, hit me up on any of my social media accounts, J Reels on Instagram, J Reels 1, just the number on Twitter. Also the J Reels podcast on my Facebook fan page as well as the email address if you want to send me an email the old conventional way, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. And once again, people, forever indebted for all your support whether you've been listening from day one or you just started listening because all i'm here is to bring everything that's happening in the world of the diamond ice gridiron hardwood golf course racetrack tennis court from an unfiltered but yet passionate and if you couldn't tell by this podcast then i don't know what you're missing or i don't know what you're listening to people but still uh again the support is much appreciated lots of gratitude and all i could say is thank you twice more than once as I deliver each and every week here on the J Reels Podcast, and hopefully in the future, more than once a week. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.